purpose of a discussion today, more than a lecture, is to discuss uh, whether some of the ideas when we talk about immigration are actual rea reality or they are more myth. The concept of immigration has um, been recently discussed because of the state of the economy. Every time the economy has a downturn, people start shooting the immigrants as the people you have to blame for high unemployment and all those things. Um, that idea is not new. I mean, you can come back to uh, the physiocrats, which were in the late 18th century. Uh, you can come back to, uh, you know, the classical economists that discuss all those ideas about immigration and uh, laborers, workers, working, and uh, uh, the, the effect of foreign workers on the uh, domestic labor. Uh, the physiocrats were a school of thought that thought that most of the wealth came from uh, agricultural product, farming. And uh, they were extremely free market. They came with that uh, motto called laissez-faire, laissez-passer, which means hands off. Let people do what they have to do for maximizing their wealth and let the goods and people circulate uh, where they have to go to work, right? They, we're sponsoring immigration policies to allow workers to go work the field because they were strongly opposed to uh, Colbert, who was a minister of, in France, that was promoting industrialism and commerce. And therefore, a lot of workers were moving to the cities, which was taking work away from farms, and physiocrats were outraged by those kind of things, right? So today, we are going to talk about most of those anti-immigration arguments. We are going to see they highly come back to those mercantilist idea that wealth comes mostly from what you own, right? So mercantilists believe that countries are wealthy, they have a lot of gold, a lot, a lot of gold. So they were strongly opposed, for example, to export and imports, and wanted to strongly support in, uh, exports, because the more you export, the more money you get in your country, the less you import, the more money you keep, and therefore you become wealthy. There's behind this idea, this idea that you have some kind of fixed pie. And the idea behind anti-immigration policies is also this idea of fixed pie. Right, so here's a few data that I usually show during my other lectures. Uh, about U.S. immigration, you have about 36 million immigrants in U.S., uh, naturalized and non-U.S. citizens in 2009, which is about 12% of U.S. population. Right? You have 21 million immigrants from non-U.S. citizens. You have about a million person in 2009 with a green card. In 2009, we estimate there's about 11 million U.S. unauthorized immigrants. Here's a few nice graphs that shows you the peaks of immigration, 1991. Right? The 90s is that period where you have a huge wave of immigration. Right, more graph, because I only have 15 minutes. I don't want to spend much time. But right. Right, You can see, by region of birth, most people come mostly from... Latin America, Central America. All right. Can I spend my time spending graph, right? So what we are going to do is to talk, use a lot of classical liberal ideas in simple economics to discuss uh, immigration. Uh, we are going to talk about David Ricardo and Adam Smith and their principles of uh, division of labor and the law of comparative advantage, which is defined as you will specialize where you have a lowest opportunity cost to produce goods or make services. And all of you have taken, my, most of you have taken an econ class with me, so you know that definition. Uh, I also realize, of course, as a good Frenchman that I am, I have to sponsor my French uh, ancestors. Right? They are not really my ancestors, but, you know, 
Frank Bastia was a famous economic journalist that wrote a bunch of essays. He was a fun, a strong classical liberal, and he explained, and this is very important, that often the short benefits become long-term cost, and sometimes short-term costs often become long-term benefit. He wrote this essay called, the first sentence of this essay is, the difference between a good economist and a bad economist is bad economists tend to focus on short-term benefits and completely ignore the long-term possible costs. They tend to focus on short-term consequences and ignore those possible long-term consequences. Right? All right. Let's talk about those different arguments against immigration or in favor of immigration. Well, the first one is immigrants take jobs away from Americans, so only jobs Americans don't want to do for the wage immigrants are being paid. As a result, immigrants increase unemployment and depress wages. That's, that's you, for everybody that technique can class, I mean, you have a quantity price, you have a demand for labor, you have a supply of labor. If you are a lot of immigrants that come in your country, what's happening to the supply? It's going to increase. The supply of labor is going to increase. Therefore, the wages are going to go down. The real question is, are those wages, are those workers perfect substitutes? Are the immigrants' labor force a perfect substitute for American labor force? So if you look at empirical studies, that's not happening. There's no depression of the wages. George Bohas, which is probably the most anti-immigration economist you will find, found that over a 20-year period, the reduction of native-born workers without a high school degree, their wages fall from 4 to 5%. That's not a lot over a 20-year period. Now, if you look at more recent studies, when you focus on task specialization, the decrease in wages is about 0.3% with tax specialization and about 1.2% without tax specialization. So what do you think we have this effect? What do you think that impact on wages is actually so minimal? Yes. Um, they're going after jobs that most Americans don't want anyways. And because of that, they're um, filling those niches, so lowering down prices, so actually it's beneficial to the country. Yeah. The, the idea is, comes from David Ricardo. You will specialize wherever you have a lowest comparative advantage. Your basic argument, the basic answer to that question is, even for low skills work, the low skills immigrants' labor is not the same as the low-skills American labor. What do you think is one of the things Americans, even low-skilled Americans' advantage have over immigrants' workers? There's one advantage. If you took an American that is not, as a, not even a high school degree, Language. right? Language, right? This American-speaking American. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, I have to say it. <laughs> you don't really speak English. Right? Americans speak American. They have a language advantage over foreign immigrants that American, for most of them, is the second language. And some of them, when they are low skilled, they don't even have the basic skills. So what the study shows, exactly, is that the, the immigrants, that the low skilled immigrants that come to the U.S., they are specialized in labor force which involves manual work with no communication skills or little communication skills. On the other hand, the, the low-skill low Americans, they specialize in labor force, even for low-skill, that involve communication skills, like being a receptionist. You need to be able to speak somebody that can understand you. As an immigrant, you will work in construction. You will work in the field. You work in, you know... Uh, Mowing the loans, things that don't require to communicate with other people. If you have low, uh, if you even if you have a, a less than a high school degree, you will, uh, as an American, you specialize in jobs where you have communication. So therefore, those immigrants don't take jobs away from Americans. They just specialize in things that for which we have a comparative advantage, which leaves open for jobs for Americans that immigrants cannot do. Right? So it's just nothing more than what David Ricardo says. 
I can, for example, clean my apartment very well. But I can also teach economics. I assume I teach economics very well as well. The question is, when I spend time cleaning my apartment, I am not doing things that I could do to improve my teaching or to get more students uh, improve their learning. Therefore, I have an opportunity cost every time I clean my apartment. So I'm better off hiring people that might not be as good as I am at cleaning the apartment, but for which the opportunity cost of cleaning my apartment is much lower than for me. And it's the same thing for Americans. They will specialize in, in jobs for which they have a comparative advantage. And usually, in the short run, this is what happens. When immigrants come in the wave, you have a big wave of immigration. In the short run, you observe a short decline of employment among low-skilled Americans. But in the long run, there is no decline of employment about low-skilled Americans. This, they find new jobs and sometimes better jobs which are more highly paid. Right? You get higher paid as a, somebody that exercises communication skills as somebody who is going to mow the lawn. Right? Now, I always say this. What if immigrants did depress their wages? What does that mean? If, what if, if those immigrants, when they come, they depress wages? It means that the price of a consumer goods will be cheaper. And therefore, it leaves more room for people to buy more goods. And one of the things that we don't talk about is that the high school dropout rate. If wages go down, you will give incentive to those native American citizens not to drop off high school because wage goes down. The opportunity cost of staying in high school goes down. Therefore, they have more incentive to complete their education. They have more incentive to go to college. And therefore, they have more incentive to get a better job and get higher wages. And this is what happens, actually, in the long run. There's other example. For example, when it comes to um, high-skill immigration or highly-skilled immigrants, when there's a study that shows that the 1% increase in immigrant college graduates' population share increased patents by, per capita by between 9 and 18%, which means when you have a bunch of immigrants which are highly-skilled but go to college, colleges generate a lot of patents for U.S., there's another thing that I don't talk that is not cited here, which is when you have a lot of immigrants that come to specialize in those tasks like being nannies, mowing the lawn, taking care of your yard, cleaning your apartment. This is lower, those costs of those services that go extremely low because they are willing to take the job at lower wages. What's happening? Because the jobs are very cheap, the rate of U.S. fertility rates go up. Americans make more baby because now they can afford to hire a nanny. They can afford to, to have more children because those jobs for which they hire immigrants are so lowly paid, they save a bunch of money. So they start the baby machine again. Right. All right. But that's not the, that's, that's one of the myths that's very interesting. But this is the one people talk about. We, I am an immigrant. I am a criminal. I must be a criminal. I don't speak the language. Right? I dress funny. I drink funny type of beverages. I drink that thing is red. When most of you drink that thing which is kind of transparent, bubbly, Bud Light, Cool Light, and all things that you pretend to be beer, but they are not beer. They are just sparkling water with fuzzy yellow stuff in it. Right? So, and the assumption is like, look, illegal immigrants come in that country, they already break the law to come in this country. So, what does it stop, what stop them from breaking even, even more the law? The, you know, the marginal cost of breaking the law a little bit more than already did is extremely low. So I, break one, I, I commit one crime by coming in this country, I'm going to commit a little bit more crimes. Well, the static doesn't work this way. It doesn't work this way. 
You, I mean, the statistics show that national level, that foreign-born marriage age 18 to 30 are five times less likely to be in jail, right, than for natives. And why is that? It's when, when you come in this country illegally, and you certainly break the law, it's illegal to come in uh, without approval of the Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security, or INS, former INS, you are looking for a job. You have no incentive to commit crimes. Right? And the statistics shows and police officers when they arrest illegal immigrants, it's not because they broke the law on the traffic road, it's because they drove too slowly. They were too careful. They were actually respecting the law. They were not speeding. They were like, oh, this guy is not speeding. He must be a legal immigrant. I'm going to stop him. That's mostly the cause for arrest. The supposedly cause for arrest is you break the law. Well, no, the supposedly cause for arrest in that case is that actually you respected the law because most people in the U.S. don't respect speed limits. So when you saw somebody that respects speed limits, you're like a little bit worried. Is he is either drunk or... We have something to hide. Right. Cool. It's a question of incentive. There's nothing special about that. Right? Even legal immigrants. If I break the law as a legal immigrant, they kick me out. I have to come back to my French baguette, wine, and cheese eating country. <laughs> Do I really want that? Ah, no. They're socialistic, too. I mean, I will, my salary will be much lower. Right? I, would be, I would have, my salary would be half of what it is now. I'm happy to work in the U.S. because my salary is double than what my colleagues in France are doing. Right? Do you have any questions? No? We can... All right. Oh, that's, that is the biggest topic ever. That, I think, is one of the most important things. Well, new immigrants are poor and net consumers of government services. Because most of immigrants are low-scale, they are poor, so they tend to consume more government services. So they, 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 and the, the data show it's not true. Even the people that are the most critical of immigration find that in benef there is a net benefit of immigration to the U.S. It's a small, they find it's a tiny, small net benefit. It's about what? In net, maybe $20 million or something like that. Something tiny, tiny, tiny. But still a net benefit. It doesn't cost more to the society than it costs when we think. Right? When it comes to illegal immigrants, they pay social security taxes on fake social security IDs. I can, even me as a legal immigrant, I cannot benefit from social security. Why? Because I'm not a U.S. citizen. I have to be a U.S. citizen to be able to get the Social Security. Right? But illegal immigrants, they affect Social Security numbers. They pay taxes. Their employers pay taxes and affect Social Security numbers. But they are never going to see the money. So overall, they are net payers. Now, you will always learn that story that says, and I'm sure that you may have learned, well, you go to the emergency room in a hospital, and all the people you see there are immigrants. That's the common critic. So they have a heavy burden on the U.S. society. Well, the answer is wrongly stated. The statement is not done correctly. People that come to the ER at the last minute is not because they are immigrants or illegal immigrants. It's because they don't have health care. This is not a problem of immigration. It's a problem of health care insurance. They don't have health care insurance. A lot of people in the U.S. that are not immigrants don't have health care insurance, and they also go to the ER the last minute to consume that health care and therefore do contribute to increase in uh, health care cost. Right. Now, that's a very important thing. Most U.S. welfare state money does not go, goes to all people, not to the poor people. Most of that money is being distributed to the old people. Not to the poor people. Right. Right. The second point is like new immigrants, they come from poor countries that have bad policies. Maybe they are going to therefore try to expand policy to redistribute welfare. That's the argument of Milton Freeman. You cannot have free immigration with the welfare state. 
right? A welfare state is a state that provides a lot of redistribution. High tax level, high level of public goods, high level of social service, high number of redistribution. And Milton Freeman, who was Nobel Prize in economics, said, look, I can't, we can't have free immigration with a welfare state at the same time because all the immigrants will come to do what? To collect welfare. Which is the main criticism that you observe in Europe. You think immigrants, when they come to the U.S., they come to the U.S. to collect welfare. That is not true because the welfare system in the U.S. is extremely bad. If you want to really collect welfare, you have to go to Europe. Go to France. And that's why we have this issue with huge anti-immigration policies and stance in Europe. It's because we have a highly welfare developed welfare system. And that's not a good thing. France has a, one of the biggest welfare systems, and so is Spain. And we have a huge wealth of immigration of people. And they don't come to work, they come to collect welfare. Right. What the sentence doesn't say here is that Milton Friedman said, we cannot have free immigration of a welfare system. They say, that's why illegal immigration is good. Because illegal immigrants... They come to work, they pay taxes on their fake social security number, and they don't collect anything. So we should cheer for illegal immigration because they pay more than they collect. That's what Milton Freeman is saying, the entire sentence say, hey, you cannot have free immigration because we have a welfare state. But if we have a welfare state, we should support illegal immigration. This is this argument, so, and I'm not a lawyer, and I know there's a lawyer in the room, so I'm not trying to say too many stupid things at the same time, <laughs> even though I do say a lot of stupid things. Um, if to cons you could change, make a citizenship requirements to consume government services, if your main concern is these immigrants are going to consume a lot of government services because they are poor, you can change the law. Some states have made a requirement that you have to be either proof that you are a legal immigrant or that proof that you are a U.S. citizen to consume government services. Now, if people start become, everybody start becoming a U.S. citizen to consume those government services, you can change the Constitution. What, is the, what, is the, what does the Constitution say about how to become a U.S. citizen in the U.S.? Who becomes a U.S. citizen in the U.S.? You can become by being naturalized or... Being born here. Marriage, right? Yeah, so a marriage and everything, those have a what you become naturalized, but people that born here become naturally citizens, right? Just because they're born here. That's why we have these stories of immigrants that, you know, those tragic stories of immigrants that people tell of anchor babies. People come to the U.S., they have their children here, so their children become U.S. citizens, and at the same time, they stay here because... Who is going to kick me out and leave my baby alone in the U.S.? You will be surprised. I actually do that in the U.S. They can deport you and, leave, and your children stay here. Yeah. So you can change the Constitution if you want to. From just solely, which means you, people that are born in the U.S. become U.S. citizens, or you can do the contrary, just sanguinous. Just sanguinous means uh, you have to be a descendant of an American. So your citizenship is derived from your blood not from your soil. Some countries have done that in the past. Germany, at one point of the time, had a law that says to become a German or to be German, you have to be a descendant of a German person. Am I correct? I don't know German law. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but some countries have adopted that. In France, we had this story that in the late 2000 is that because we have such a big wave of immigration, when people turn 17, children of immigrants, and they turn 17, they have to go to the city hall and purposely say, I, I want to stay French. As opposed to say, I was born in France, so I'm French. So now when you turn 17, you have to go to the city hall and say, make a choice what citizenship you want to be on. And, and, and just, uh, I'm sorry. 
If you look at statistical analysis of voting patterns of naturalized citizens, it's just right in the middle. So 50% vote for Democrat, 50% vote for Republicans. And amazingly, the immigrants that tend to vote for people that have conservative ideas or you know, not to expand social services, usually they come from poor countries. It's actually the immigrants that come from the rich countries that tend to support those welfare systems. The Europeans, when they move to U.S., except for a couple of French that you know, me and uh, Veronique de Rugy, right? Most of them support welfare systems. They tend to heavily support welfare systems. So it's not because you are poor that you're going to support a, welfare, a socialized welfare system. It's not. The statistics don't show those data. This is the Thomas Sowell argument. Thomas Sowell is a preeminent economist at Stanford University and Hoover Institute. We should not have free immigration because immigrants destroy American culture. So that's my joke. What is American culture? What is it? It's a culture of immigration, right? It's a melting pot. So, so the argument he's trying to say is that most immigrants is not trying to say, well, you know, they destroy American culture. He's trying to say two things. Most immigrants don't speak American or don't speak English. This is going to be destroyed. So if you have a huge district of group of immigrants living in the same place, you might change the local language. One of the con if you go to California, one of the complaints of a lot of Californians is that some schools have been stored uh, bilingual school, where classes have been taught in Spanish. Right. I share the same name with a famous city council in LA. My name is Alex Padilla. His name is Alex Padilla. I have received email from people complaining to me <laughs> that schools were holding PTA meeting in Spanish, and I'm a white American, and my daughter speaks English. I cannot speak Spanish. So can you do something about that? So I have to redirect the email to the actual Alex Padilla with a note saying, this is political, I'm an economist, it's a public choice thing, <laughs> you're never going to get what you want. It's never going to happen. <laughs> so that's the argument number one. The, the, foreign, the immigrants don't speak American, this is going to destroy the tissue, the cultural tissue, the language. Uh, um, we are going to have an evolution of the U.S. language. The argument is not true because most 90% of second generation immigrants speak, speak English. Actually, we speak two languages. The other argument is doing, trying to say is that heterogeneity, the more heterogeneous is your population in terms of culture, religion, languages, the less coordination you have with people. The question is that, in reality, if you look at the American culture and uh, society, it's already very diverse by nature. Those immigrants that come from South America and Asia, they don't add much to the diversity. The diversity is already there. Now, I make a joke. I don't want to, you, to offend anybody, but... Uh, if you talk about American culture, talking about uh, Faulkner, uh, you know, famous writers, you know, like uh, William Faulkner, uh, Hemingway, all those great writers you think about, all those great musicians you think about, go to American high school. So you're not going to tell me how much do you read Faulkner. How many of you have read William Faulkner in high school? No, no. Have you read uh, Hemingway? Ah, okay, okay, all right. Um, what do we have? The Great Gatsby. Have you read The Great Gatsby? All right. All right, okay, so you may have read some. But not the great, uh, all those classic of American literature have been disappearing from high school. Now you read uh, Superman and Batman, probably, right? <laughs> 
Twilight, Twilight, during Twilight. Twilight and Harry Potter. And the School of Magic. Right? right. So, I mean, that's a bad joke, but it's the truth. I mean, you don't need immigrants to destroy American culture. We are destroying it ourselves by our education system. Right? We prevent our students to read those great classics that they should be reading. All right, so I'm almost done, actually. I went faster because I went through those uh, speaking slides. Is there real programs? Of course, illegal immigration is a real program to some extent. You want to know who is coming to your country. You, you, want to, to, uh, you don't want everybody to come. You don't want criminals to come. You don't want people that are going to come to U.S. to, to, uh, uh, yeah, to criminals, right? Heterogeneity, it's a problem. I don't have a solution to that answer. Yes, there's a lot of data that shows that the more heterogeneous is your society, the less stable it is socially. But I don't have a solution to that. I just cannot say there's a lot of evidence that even in heterogeneous society, you have a lot of coordination. There's a paper that was written um, that talks about... Uh, Adam Smith talks about heterogeneity a lot. For example, when you talk about... Trade, a lot of uh, European countries, when Adam Smith discussed trade in European countries, he, he talks about uh, the Dutch. The Dutch have, a most, have the highest reputation as the best traders in the world because they have a reputation of being always respecting their contracts. There's a lot of stories that tell you Maghreb traders coming from East Asia and North Africa came to Europe to bring their products to uh, uh, markets in Europe. They were coming from different cultures, they had different religions, but they used a lot of mechanisms to try to coordinate people from different cultures. Uh, where, uh, one of the former students, um, Diana knows him, uh, that wrote about Spanish medieval trade and uh, talk about the convivienza, who was the leader of credit. In the Middle Age, Spain was not uniform. You had Jewish people, you had Muslims and Catholics, and you had a very diverse population. So how did trade take place between those, those group of people? They used a letter of credits. They used a mechanism where you brought a letter of credit as a repetition mechanism to be able to, as a sign of trust. If I don't fulfill my contract, I will repay you that. Right? So there's a lot of evidence that shows that even in heterogeneous society, there's a lot of market mechanism and devices that people have created to convey those reputation mechanism. Welfare states. Well, the entire IHS is exploring liberty. We have most economists, a lot of economists and social scientists agree that the welfare state usually, you don't want it. Because the bigger your welfare state, the lower your economic growth, the more social problems you have, and it's not things. So the problem is not immigration. The real problem is the welfare state. How do we get rid of our welfare state? Politics. Ah, that's... Uh, Diana is going to talk about that tomorrow, right? We are going to talk about public choice and uh, regulations and uh, interest groups. Later today. Later today. 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 Sorry, yes. I, I, I forgot... <laughs> Tomorrow I have to. Uh, there's a football game. We can't. Uh, we can't uh, do any lecturing. <laughs> the, George Middle Messi will be sad if he cannot see the Broncos. Politics. A lot of immigration poli policies are politically based. It's about interest groups. I am going to pass an anti-immigrant policy because a lot of people don't know anything about immigrants. They are scared of immigrants. Therefore, I'm going to pay that policy. I don't really care if it's hurting us in the, in the long run. In the short run, I'm going to get elected. Right. And, and Bastia, which I talked about at the beginning, come back with a topic a lot in his writing and his correspondences. And uh, Brian Kaplan, I wrote a book called He wrote a book called The Myth of a Rational Voter. 
I don't want to spoil uh, Diana's lecture, so. Basically says that a lot of the policies are very anti-market and anti-foreign. It is natural among a lot of societies, even in France you hate the foreign people because you think those foreign people are going to take your wealth away. So if they work in the US, they are taking money away from Americans. If you buy foreign products made by foreign people, you are taking away money from them, from Americans. So it's a very anti-foreign, there's some kind of saying like, if American workers don't work, those type of jobs, it's money we take away from them. When actually American workers are specializing jobs that earn them higher income, so you don't take money away from them. This is the idea of fixed pie versus growing pie. The pie, the economic pie is not fixed. It's not because somebody is taking a job that you are taking resources away from other people. You actually, by that person taking a job, opening ways to other type of jobs for over additional resources. Inefficient solution, that was the le uh, my lecture was about uh, the Arizona thing. Help the local police to enforce immigration policies. It's the same thing, I mean, why, why they will help be more helpful? They are also going to be subject to uh, interest groups and biases because they don't know much more about immigrants than the average person, or federal immigrants. All right, so I provide a few solutions. Decentralization, let the states dictate their own immigration policies. Auctions, you can auction immigration visas. You can return to some sort of Bracero program. So the Bracero program was in the 60s, Immigrants can cross the border back and forth during high season of farming. So during, you know, when you had to collect groups and all these things, immigrants from Mexico will cross the border, and at the end of the summer or at the end of the season, they will come back to the country. The day they cancel the Brasero program, what happened is that all those immigrants that were coming for those temporary jobs, they stay. And after they brought their, their, their families, a lot of immigrants rather come back, back and forth between their country and the U.S. Also, I don't know if you have heard about that, actually a lot of discussion about immigration is about Mexican immigration. The issue is that Mexican immigration has been going down a lot. Why is that? No. Because Mexico is going to become a wealthier country. They are growing, their rate of growth is growing, so immigrants don't want to, they rather stay in Mexico, they want to go to college in Mexico, and then come into the U.S., right? So we, we have to understand that most of the labor movement, migration, are not constant and fixed. They are highly dependent of uh, the economic condition of the country. So if you actually want to reduce immigration, you should promote policies Efficient policies that allow those foreign countries to grow as well. All right, I think I have room for more questions and the sessions. What countries or regions have the best immigration policies? And what are what characteristics of those countries are? Yeah, what are the characteristics of those countries' policies? That's a very difficult question. I don't think any country has a good immigration policy. I, I just think uh, my knowledge of immigration policies is that is what I said before, that uh, most, most citizens in those countries are very anti-immigrant. So you have, I've never found any countries with good immigration policies, but historically, you has as the best immigration policy. They were just open borders. They needed people to come in. They were doing the jobs, and that's what happened. I think historically most countries had good immigration policies when they were open borders because they had more free trade and full free movement. Um, so what so uh, what are characteristics of those countries' policies? I mean, we as it's all. I, I, let me say, I think it's highly conditional on what type of government you have. If you have, a, most 
anti-immigration or immigration policies, instead of calling that anti-immigration, most immigration policies strongly arose during the rise of a welfare state. When the welfare states are growing, when you had more and more redistribution, people were worried. People are going to come to my country to consume those welfare benefits and to consume those, reduce, uh, those uh, welfare packages. Even the countries which are, actually, a lot of countries, I'm thinking about Hong Kong. I, I'm not a very specialist in Hong Kong, but Hong Kong is defined as the number one country in the world that has the highest rate of economic freedom. Hong Kong has a lot of immigrants. Actually, most people working in Hong Kong are foreign people. So there's a high rate of immigration, but they don't get citizenship. They don't stay forever. They're just coming back. Right? The argument is that uh, my, my thinking is that a lot of immigration takes place when you prevent people from coming from back and forth. They, they come, in the US, for example, a lot of immigration from Mexico. They came from Mexico to work, and because there were no guarantee for them to be able to come back, to leave and come back whenever they wanted, they decided to stay. So if you want people to, you want more free movement in immigration. Who asked that question? Which, which group was that? Yes. You have a more, does that answer your question? Do you want more details? Okay, thank you. Does the minimum wage skew the data about wage depression? Uh, all right, so most, so I'm trying to think about that because I never thought about that question. It's a good question, who asked it? What's that question? Was it group B? Over here? Okay. Um, all right. Most low-skill workers are being paid minimum wage when they are legal. Right? If you are legal, you are being paid minimum wage in general. So, in other words, you could say there is no depression of a wage because the minimum wage has increased. Uh, I don't know if I can answer affirmatively or negatively because I'm, if I say yes, I might be wrong. If I say no, I still might be wrong. Or I will assume, so let me think. I will assume that it might be the case when it comes to legal immigration. For legal, unskilled immigration, when you are a legal immigrant, you are going to be paid a minimum wage, therefore you, your wage is not going to be depressed because that, that, that minimum wage is there. So you, everybody, whether you are a citizen or an immigrant, is going to be the same wage. Right? The idea when we talk about, and, and so it's possible that, it does, that there is no depression in those wages because of minimum wage laws, but the question is those minimum wage laws are coming from immigrants? Well, also, I think that a minimum wage, th there's also other factors to be uh, taken into account, you know, inflation and stuff like that. It addresses the nominal side, but not necessarily the real side of So when I talk about this data, it's in real wages. So you discount inflation, right? You adjust for inflation rates. So, but if you were arguing, look, because of minimum wage, those immigrants don't depress wages because of minimum wage laws. You have to think that those immigrants, most of them are not citizens, so they don't vote for those laws. So actually, if those wages are not going down, it's because those low-skill or people that vote for increasing minimum wage laws are a citizen. So they benefit from those supporting minimum wage laws. But again, the question is, I think the most of the debate is not really whether or not immigrants depress wages, is whether or not immigrants displace workers. I am taking a job that we used to do. And the answer is there is no perfect substitute between, between immigrants' labor, even unskilled immigrant labor and unskilled American labor, because unskilled American labor specializes with a comparative advantage, which is 
communication jobs as opposed to unskilled immigrants specializing in other type of jobs such as construction, farming, and other things. What are the economic benefits of being anti-immigration? Uh, hmm. I don't think there are any. I, I think people who are anti-immigration that we were talking in the whole way about that story, right? So we're, we're talking about that case in Alabama that passed the strongest anti-immigration laws in la a couple of months ago. And the governor said this is a job bill for American workers because those immigrants are going to go away and a bunch of Americans are going to take the jobs. That's the belief of the governor. The story tells you when you look at the experiment now is that People that try to hire American workers, they are like, pardon my French on the camera, they suck. They, 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 they cannot do the job. And when they try to do the job after two hours, they just give up on it. They're like, this is too hard. I'm out of here. Right? So what they try to do is to substitute those immigrants with parolees, people coming out of jails. People that, this, that need to have a job to stay out of jail. People that are on parole. After two hours, those people on parole say, I'm not doing this. I'm out of here. I'm going back to jail. It's better. I'm better off. <laughs> right. So I don't think there's any real economic benefit. The people that benefit from anti-immigration are people that get elected because they support those anti-immigration laws. I don't... In the long, uh, so maybe in the short run, you, uh, okay, so it's different. In the short run, you may have some benefits in the sense that you don't get displaced workers, right? Because you have some displaced workers, low-skilled workers keep their jobs at those wages. But in the long run, they, they tend to lose their jobs because they, if the, their labor, their wages is too high compared to what the immigrants would be willing to work for, they are going to substitute those people. The, who has that question over there? Does that answer your question? Do you have more? Do you, do you want me more? I can try to elaborate if you want me to. That's what I'm here for. I, I just don't think there's, I don't see, and maybe because I'm biased, I'm in pro free immigration, I really don't see in the, short, in the long run any benefits to be anti immigration. The, the thing will say that the law of compartment advantage will tell you that the David Ricardo has said you have to specialize where you have a lowest opportunity because they say that if you don't get those immigrants in that country, it's going to be more costly for you to produce those goods. And you will produce less goods. You want to say something? I, I, I do think the incentive is I hate foreign people. I hate people that are different from me because they don't speak the same language, because they don't have the same religious belief, because they don't eat the same food, they don't dress the same way, because we had this talk in the hallway about when we talk about American culture and we, we, we were talking about uh, Brian Kaplan that says people that the most anti-immigration because they are afraid that it's going to destroy their culture are the areas where they have no culture. No, Tom can't, that's not true. They have a culture. As little you think it's the culture watching rodeos or watching, what's the name of the show? Hee Haw. Hee Haw show, which is a country music. It's, it, yeah, it's about time? All-star wrestling. There's a lot of things in American culture. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> WWF, yes, yes. You want. Those tiny cultural things, they are afraid of those foreign people. But it's not because 
their benefits is I'm going to stay comfortable in my environment. It's not something, it could be translated in economic benefit if you're a true economist, you say, my utility function, my satisfaction of my wealth life is greater why don't I have those foreign people around me that eat differently, that dress differently, that speak differently, that consume different type of goods. That will be the economic benefit. If you want to be strictly narrow in economic benefit, but at the society, I don't think there's much level, right? I think, I think individuals, their economic benefit is that I am hanging out with people that speak like me, think like me, and eat the same food like me. Burgers, ribs, you know, things, you know, same food I like, right? I don't want that no, but Indian food next to that restaurant because the Indian smell is going to destroy my barbecue food smell. You know, it's it's a bad joke, but that's that's the way people think. And and and, and it's not American. It's not proper to American. You, you have to understand that my entire argument is this is a common argument among every country in the world. Japan has the reputation to be the most anti-immigrant country against South Koreans. There is a huge wave of South Koreans in, in Japan, and they are treated like the lowest and lowest members of the society. And you will, and us, people from the Western part, will say, what's the difference between South Korean culture and Japanese culture? There's no difference. They must be the same. They are very different. So it's just, your utility function is highly dependent of homogeneity. There are people, I obviously, I was born in France, my family is Spanish, I came to the US, I embrace diversity, I enjoy American culture, I watch a lot of football, I make fun, a lot of, a lot of fun of the Broncos. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, I enjoy diversity. I enjoy talking to people to different cultures in general because it expands, you know, improve my happiness. I think it expands my knowledge. All right, so should our public policy cater to language needs of immigrants? Should American, Engl <laughs> should American English be made the national language? Uh, that's, that's, those are very normative questions. So should our public policy cater to the needs of immigrants? I don't think so. I think if immigrants want to learn English, they will learn it. Right? And if you want to, people that really want to integrate themselves, they will learn the language. I, I mean, and people that don't want, you cannot force feed them. Because if they don't want, they don't want to. To adopt a language, to adopt a culture, to adopt an institution, a whether it's an economic institution, political institution, you have to see the benefits of adopting that thing. So if people, people that learn English or try to learn American or whatever foreign language they want to learn, it's because they see a benefit out of it. If you, you can force feed them. Look, I, I'm sure you all have been in high school and you had to take a foreign language. How many of you have taken French? Oh, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? <laughs> How many of you remember a lot of the French you have learned? Yeah, you just say, you know how to say baguette and beret, <laughs> petite, things like that. Things that Americans know how to speak already. You just try to put my, you listen to me and say, I'm going to mimic Alex Padilla's accent and it should be okay. <laughs> we were talking about Peter Sellers, right? Peter Sellers. You're trying to think about the Pink Panther. Should American English be made the national language? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can, it's a very normative thing. So I, I believe... Here, here's a more positive question. What would be the economic benefits of making American English the national language? Uh, or what would be the costs of doing The benefit will be that you, people that are more anti-immigrants might be more... Uh, enticed to, to accept immigrants and to do business with them. But the, the, my, my question will be, 
Is it only the language that makes a prime in the interaction with immigrants? Well, here was what I was thinking. If, like your example of the board meeting being conducted in Spanish, and people are not happy about that, just English. If we, if we made that policy across all of our schools, all of our businesses, I think it might, you know, these institutions might incur a cost. And also you ignore the needs of other cultures. I think these decisions should be made privately, is what I'm trying to say, and not oh, okay. public policy. That's a good point. Obviously, <laughs> I think, um, I don't know, I'm not a specialist in uh, the economics of language. There's a lot of literature on economics of language, evolution of language, how language evolved, how people adopt different languages. Usually, language is adopted to engage in trade. Right? So, for example, even economists, like Bastia was a French economist, and he worked in the early 19th century, right, 1800s. He knew how to read and write Spanish, and he knew how to read English as well, because if he interacted with other intellectuals or other policymakers from around other countries. So, and those policymakers knew how to write and read French. Right? You had more international... So you are midway point, midway, we meet midway. I will try to interact in your language and you will try to interact in my language. So it's, uh, we have more peaceful interactions. I think it's, I, I think it's, uh, I, I'm sure, there have been discussion, I'm pretty sure there have been discussion I've been making English the national language of the United States. I mean, we already know when you come here that you have to speak English if you want to interact with people. I, I just think, Im yes, can, yeah, I mean? I was just going to ask, like, if you look at the language, is it a spontaneous order thing? Like, yes, it is. Like, yeah, is a spontaneous That's order happening as a result of, like, people see the efficiency yeah. involved in it? So if we made a language the national language, wouldn't that get in the way of those improvements in efficiency? Yeah, it will be a co completely constructivist, what, we, what uh, Hayek talk, rational constructivism, that you force people to be, hey, everybody speaks that language, this is everybody else speaks, and if people don't see the benefit of it, they are not going to use it, and it won't evolve either. But if you force institutions to have to put all of their signs, all of their textbooks in every language, then I think, I think you have... You have a problem as well. Yes, you don't want either way. You don't want to have a forced national language. You don't have a forced, hey, every school is going to teach in two languages. You want to have a, this evolution process where people are going to adapt rules and policies or languages as they recognize the benefits of that. So there's a lot of studies and research, on, and Diana talk about that in institutional entrepreneurship. Karl Menger was which is considered as a founding father of Austrian economists, when he talk about money, his argument is, look, money is an actually an entrepreneurial institution which was evolved entrepreneurially as people use and use that type of good commodity that we call gold. They use gold because they recognize progressively the benefit of using that commodity as a medium of exchange. Right? And as a result, more people were using different type of commodities as medium of exchange, as money, but progressively more and more people realize that such and such commodity was the most common uh, commodity. And we talk about, uh, and you have heard of that in jail, what is a commodity? Cigarettes. 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 We don't have cash. Cigarettes is a, it's of money. And a long time ago, in the army, at least in France, I'm sure in the USA, people that were drafted were paying cigarette packs, and packs of cigarettes became were commodities and money. Right? And they used that thing as it became a commodity because people realized it was the easiest medium of exchange, the one that was the easiest to exchange for. Could you address the, the issues of consumer prices, the hospital problem? And the inefficiency of an increase in law enforcement with respect to the population influx, sorry. 
And now do you remittance? How much time do I have left, Isaac? Okay, so. <laughs> All right, so let me do the last one. How do remittances affect the economy? So remittances as people that work in the U.S. and ship their money to their family in their foreign country. He helps a little bit, but not much. Because remittances is people ship money to their family because initially it goes to countries that receive a lot of foreign aid because most of the foreign aid is taken away by those dictators. So people that actually work in those poor countries don't get the money. So parents, immigrants, send a lot of their money to their families. right? But it doesn't help a lot. Because you can, it helps sustain your life to achieve some minimum living standards, but it does not help to get economies growing. Right? Because the key element when it comes to have economies growing is institutions. Have sound economic institutions. So as long as you have bad economic institutions, people will have no incentive to get the money they save and invest it in entrepreneurial activities. So they will consume most of the money instead of saving to build capital to lead to economic growth. What leads to economic growth of countries is the idea that people save money to build capital goods to achieve long economic growth. But to do that, you need to have some economic institution like private property rights, enforcement of contracts, rule of law, etc., etc. Now, can you address the issues of consumer prices, the hospital problem, and the efficiency of an increase in law enforcement? That's three questions at the same time. All right, so let's see. What's the most important one? Because I probably have two minutes left. Okay. So when you have a lot of people, you know, for example, you mentioned the hospital problem, when you have a lot of people in the emergency room, it, you know, there are some benefits to it in the sense that you say that you know, there are also benefits to it, but the issue is that there are more people that are in the United States, and there are more people in that emergency room, which takes away from, you know, whoever walks in the door. All right. That's the, so the argument, so, but the question is, so... All right, so you have an increase in the demand for the healthcare services, therefore the price of healthcare goes up, et cetera, et cetera. We all agree with that. So the question is, how many of those people are immigrants? And the answer is a very low number of people that are in the emergency room are actually immigrants. The data shows about 25% of the uninsured people in the U.S. are immigrants or illegal immigrants. But most immigrants, illegal immigrants, they... They don't go to those healthcare services, and they don't, and they have healthcare for most of them, right? So I mean, the, does that influx affects the price of healthcare? Yes, it does. The question is by how much, and my answer is extremely marginally. I don't think those immigrants actually increase the price of healthcare that makes those healthcare services for everybody much more expensive as much as we think. It's just it's highly based on anecdotal evidence where people tell you, look, my wife is a nurse and I observe that immigrant that was timing a contraction before asking for health care, for ER intervention. But that's one case. But the data don't show that there's as much immigrants. I've, yes, more increase in immigration do affect health care prices. Yes, but I think it's marginally. And the entire question is, is it, because of, is it because we have immigration that healthcare services are in, costs are increasing, or is it because we have bad healthcare policies? So do but you know so people that are highly anti-immigrants might say, well, look, it's because of immigrants, because we have an influx of people, therefore the cost of healthcare goes up, so the quality of healthcare for non-immigrant people for citizens goes down. And my answer is, well, that's true at the margin, but I believe economically it makes more sense that's because we have bad economic policies, a bad health policy. Now, the prices, is it the price and hospital prime the same thing? Is it price and hospital prime the same thing, or is it two different things? They were two different things. I just had a hard time logically understanding how... If you... Because those influx of people that work in the country, they, 
they are paid lower wages than if you are a citizen because they are willing to work for a lower price. Therefore, your cost of production goes down, so you are going to sell your goods at a lower price. At the same time, you save money. People that consume goods at those lower price goods, like mowing the lawn, nursing, cleaning, you know, like, uh, uh, how do you call that? House cleaning, etc. Because they are charged, they are less costly to people that consume them, that frees money for over type of expenses, that frees therefore money for over type of jobs being created. 